All right, which kind of people are you? There's two types of people in the world, okay? There's the first type of person is the type of person who will tell their friend that they have something in their teeth. And the second type of person will not tell them because it's embarrassing. Okay, so this is easy with your spouse, right? Hey, what are you saving that for later, you know? Um, but the further, <laughs> yeah, Melissa's laughing because I say that all the time. Um, the further away you get uh, in closeness, though, the harder it is to tell somebody they have something in their teeth, right? Like, would you tell the barista who was, you'd be like, you have something in your teeth? I don't know if I could tell a stranger you have something in your teeth, right? There's that, I don't know, that's just kind of awkward, you know? I don't know. Um, anyway, all right, I want you to think about that feeling that, should I tell them? Should I not tell them? It's kind of embarrassing not to tell them. That's our whole theme today, is that feeling. Um, except with uh, what we're going to be talking about today is not um, having something in your teeth. It's eternal destiny and life as we know it. And what do we believe about the gospel, right? Uh, I think a lot of us, when we're going to talk about paths at the end, but a lot of us will shrink away from opportunities that we have in conversations to talk about the gospel, to talk about our faith, to talk about the Lord, because we have that same feeling of we don't want to be a little bit embarrassed. I mean, obviously, people want to know when they have something in their teeth, right? And they want to take it out because everybody's staring at them, and you know, but it's awkward to tell them, and so we just don't tell them. We let them go around with spinach in their teeth, right? We do the same kind of thing in life. We have this truth. We have this knowledge, right? People are walking around with, you know, eternal judgment sticking in their teeth and we don't say anything we don't do anything we shy away from so today I want to talk about like we're going to look at Ezekiel and his example of being bold and how he does this and what God calls him to and we're going to read a little from uh yeah anyway you'll see we'll get there all right so let's just start we're going to be in oh wait I want to say this one more time too I just want to put up the chart for the next couple of weeks uh we're going to put up this chart so um today uh, we are in Ezekiel chapter 33. So today we're going to read about is Ezekiel's call as a watchman and the destruction of the temple. This is um, our last, uh, we're closing out the section on judgment. We've been in the section on judgment since chapter 12, basically. well, even before chapter 12 really was the section on judgment. Um, but first we had judgment on uh, Israel, judgment on the nations. Now we're going to see the judgment on Israel actually play out. And then... Um, Next week, we're going to start the, um, the second set or the, the last section of the book, which is hope. This book ends on a hopeful note. There's hope for Israel, hope for the nations, and then hope for the temple being recreated. And we'll read all about how these all sort of connect. Um, but uh, just a real quick plug. What we're going to be doing is, oh, you know what we didn't announce, by the way, um, the first week of August? Yeah, yeah. So uh, we filled out the surveys. It looks like almost everybody's gone the first week of August. So what we're going to do is we're going to send the people that are here, we're going to do a joint service kind of with Trinity first. Everybody go over to, uh, to their church in the morning. And then the following week, this is just a quick plug for where we're going in our Ezekiel series. Um, next week will be chapter 34. Then we have that week. And then after that, we're going to come back. And in the month of August, Josue, that's him right there, he's going to teach us uh, the book of Jonah. Um, so we're going to go through Jonah in three weeks. It's going to be pretty cool. So uh, start reading Jonah and prepping for that. Um, all right, let's jump into Ezekiel chapter 33. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and tell them, suppose I bring a sword against the land and the people of that land select a man from among them, appointing him as their watchman. Okay, so the first thing to notice here is where we begin this chapter is this judgment that's coming, this horrible stuff that's happening to the people of Israel um, is coming from the very hand of God, right? He doesn't say, suppose that a sword comes, right? Look at what he says. He says, uh, suppose I bring the sword against the land. Okay, that's an important distinction, right? This is what's going on. So, um, Look what happened. So, and then he says, um, and then the people, boy, this is really crooked. There we go. Uh, the people select a watchman. You know, we'll talk about watchmen in a minute. Let me show you what this looks like. Verse three. And suppose he sees the sword coming. So this is the watchman against the land and he blows the trumpet to warn the people. Then if anyone hears the sound of the trumpet, but ignores the warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his death will be his own fault. 
Since he has heard the sound of the trumpet but ignored the warning, his death is his own fault. If he had taken the warning, he would have saved his life. However, so this is the other side, suppose that a watchman sees the sword coming, but he doesn't blow the trumpet so that the people aren't warned and the sword comes and takes away their lives. Then they have been taken away because of their iniquity. But I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. So when I was a kid, we lived over in the Excelsior on Felton Street, and uh, we had this big farmhouse that we lived in. And that farmhouse, the owner, like the guy who built the house, originally owned that whole hill. It was like a goat farm is what they told us, I think. So in the middle of all the, like, these houses that were probably built in the 50s and 60s, maybe the 40s, there was this massive farmhouse, and that's where I grew up. And the whole downstairs of the farmhouse was like a basement, and that was me and my brother's room, and it was huge. Like, honestly, our bedroom was like half the size of this room that we're in now. It was like the whole bottom of this house, and it was a lot of fun. And... I've told you a hundred stories about me and my brothers. I was the worst, but I was the ringleader. But we were all pretty terrible, and we were always doing things that we weren't supposed to be doing. And um, whenever we were doing one of these terrible things, what we would do is one of us would get assigned to go stand at the end of the hallway. So there was a long hallway that led to our room, and then at the end of that hallway was a staircase that went upstairs. So we had a pretty good amount of warning. Like we had, I don't know, 30 seconds from when we heard that door upstairs. Okay, mom and dad are coming down, you know? Um, and so somebody would stand at the end of that hallway uh, and then when they would hear that door open, they would run and they have to tell the other two brothers who were doing whatever it was that we were doing, uh, mom and dad are coming, right? That was the job. That's basically what Ezekiel is describing here. Somebody has to be the watchman. And if you don't, run back and warn the brothers, and the brothers get in trouble. Boy, they're going to be mad at you, whichever, you know. If my little brother Ben all of a sudden um, uh, didn't tell me mom was coming and mom opened the door and I was, you know, setting whatever it was on fire, um, I, you know, Ben would have been in a lot of trouble. That's going on here. But the consequence here isn't being grounded or no TV or whatever. He's talking about uh, life and death, right? These are very, this is a very serious situation. All right, verse 7, keep going. As for you, uh, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. When you hear the word from my mouth, give them a warning for me. So this is all, everything that we're about to read about the watchman stuff is interesting because do you remember we already did this whole chapter? This was the same thing we read in chapter three. Now, whenever something is repeated to the extent that this is repeated, we need to stop and ask why. Um, in chapter three, the calling was personal. This was God telling Ezekiel, Ezekiel, you... Um, you need to be the watchman. Um, this is what I'm calling you to. But it was like a private vision that Ezekiel had. Here, it's more of a public calling, right? Verse 2, God says, speak to the people and tell them this. And so that's what's going on here. Um, this is now Ezekiel telling everybody, hey, guys, God has called me to be a watchman. God is letting the people know, you know this dude Ezekiel who's been doing all this crazy stuff for however many years it's been now? He's my watchman. He's been telling you this stuff because the judgment is coming. And he keeps going, verse 8. Uh, if I say to the wicked, wicked one, you will surely die, but you do not speak, uh, sorry, you do not speak out to warn him about his way. That person will die for his iniquity, yet I will hold you responsible for his blood. But if you warn the wicked person to turn from his way and he doesn't turn from it, he will die for his iniquity, but you will have rescued yourself. So I want you to see the serious of this, um, this calling. Ezekiel, you have a responsibility, God says, to tell the people the message, and they have a responsibility to respond to that message. Um, and the stakes, again, the stakes here are life and death. And so what he does next is he gives some sort of uh, examples of people who listen, people who listen and then change their life, and people who listen and then don't change their life. And we're supposed to look at this and be challenged in our own lives. So verse 10, um, now for you, uh, sorry, as for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, you have said this, our transgressions and our sins are heavy upon us, and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we survive? So this is the first instance in the entire book of Ezekiel, where anybody except Ezekiel seems to kind of get it at least a little bit, right? Um, in chapter 18, we read that they were blaming their ancestors for the judgment that was coming. 
They were saying, this isn't our fault. This is their fault. They're the ones that didn't follow you and all this stuff. This now, finally, the people start to at least have a glimpse of hope because they see their own sin as the problem. This is a step forward. So verse 11, what does Ezekiel tell the people to do? Great. You've seen that the sin is a problem now. Verse 11, tell them as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord of the Lord God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent, repent of your evil ways. Why will you die, house of Israel? So God tells the people now to repent. But here's the problem. The book of Ezekiel, again, we've talked about this, but the book of Ezekiel is full of instances of God telling the people it's too late to repent. So what's going on here? And if you remember, last time we talked about this, what I said was there's God's talking to them on two different levels. As an individual, each one of these people is called to repent of their sin as a, uh, and to turn to the Lord. But as a people group, right, as the nation, God has told them it's too late for you as a nation to turn. This judgment is coming. But on that individual level, I want you to see how important this is. The theme of repentance is so big in the Bible. Do you guys know, I've, I think I've said this before, but repentance, what it literally means is to just turn around. Right? It means to be facing sin, to be involved in sin. And it's not to just say, well, I don't want to do that anymore. You've got to turn to something else. It's turning to the Lord. And Jesus's, uh, let's see, Jesus's first sermon was about repentance. After John was arrested, uh, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. So this is the first thing we read that Jesus is um, preaching in his public ministry. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is what Jesus called people to, repentance. And then later on, Jesus defines his mission. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. Right? This is, Jesus says, the whole reason that I've come is so that you guys will be able to repent. And then if you remember at the end of Luke, when Jesus sits his disciples down, that was a long scroll, huh? Um, <laughs> I saw it going behind me. Uh, when he sits his disciples down after the resurrection, it says he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. He also uh, said to them, this is what was written. The Messiah will suffer and rise on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. All right, so this is Ezekiel. I want you to follow the theme here and see how this applies to us. Ezekiel is told, you're a watchman, right? You have to tell the people that judgment is coming and what to do about it. And if you don't, their blood is going to be on your head. And Ezekiel goes, okay, and he tells the people, judgment is coming. They say, great, what should we do? And Ezekiel says, you should repent and move away from your sin and turn towards the Lord. And it's the exact same thing that we're called to do in our Pabst Blue Ribbon mission, is people are living in sin, and that sin is destroying their lives. They're living apart from God, and that distance is destroying their souls. And God says, and you're not telling them, even though I've called you to be a watchman, you're not telling these people because, what, they have something in their teeth and you're a little bit embarrassed to talk about it or to have these serious conversations? So let's keep going. Um, so now he gives a bunch of these. Let me flip it here. He gives a bunch of these examples. Uh, read a bunch of verses here. Now, son of man, say to your people, the righteousness of the righteous person will not save him on the day of his transgression. Neither will the wickedness of the wicked person cause him to stumble on the day that he turns from his wickedness. The righteous person won't be able to survive by his righteousness on the day that he sins. Uh, verse 13, when I tell the righteous person that he will surely live, but he trusts, this is the key, but he trusts in his righteousness, he acts unjustly, then none, none of his righteousness will be remembered and he will die because of the injustice he has committed. So, verse 14, when I tell the wicked person, you will surely die, but he repents of his sin and does what is just and right, he returns collateral. This is what it looks like to be a just person. He returns collateral, makes restitution for what he's stolen. He walks in the statutes of life. That's the law of Moses. Without uh, committing injustice, he will certainly live and he will not die. None of the sins he committed will be held against him. He has done what is just and right, and he will certainly live. Okay, so the Bible here, I mean, the book of Ezekiel here, it talks about the righteous person and the unrighteous. We can't read that in the sense of this person is sinless. That's not what it means. In the Old Testament, when it talks about this kind of righteousness, it just means, are you the person who's trying to follow the law? Are you ritually pure? Are you doing all the things in the law of Moses? The point is this, of this whole section. He gives us a couple of different examples, but the point is this. It's not how you start, but it's how you end the race. 
He says, if, a, if you, Israelites, spend your whole life following the law, and at the end you turn away from the law, it shows what was in your heart the whole time. You were never really following the law for the right reasons, and God doesn't really care if people follow the law for the wrong reasons. You were self-justifying, not relying on grace. But if you spend your whole life as a criminal, throw yourself at the mercy of God right before you die, God says you totally get it. Do you remember an example of this? Anybody? Yeah, the thief on the cross. We read in uh, the book of uh, Luke. Right? This guy, I don't know his whole life. We don't have his whole backstory, but um, he did something. Ended up on that cross. You know, the Romans got him. Whatever it was, and then right at the end, he turns to Jesus and he says, you know, hey, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's an amazing, you know, that's how it works. It's not how well you lived your life and how much brownie points you added up while you were alive. It's did you put your faith in uh, the mercy of God. Now, uh, if you see the eyes... If you see the world through the eyes of moralism and self-justification, you're going to look at that and you're going to go, that's not fair, right? I spent my whole life following God. I went to church every Sunday. I, you know, whatever it is. Um, that's what the Israelites do. But your people, verse, wait, uh, sorry, where am I? Verse 17. Um, but your people say, oops, sorry, I flipped it, my bad. <laughs> but your people say the Lord's way isn't fair, even though... It is their own way that isn't fair. When a righteous person turns from his righteousness, commits injustice, he will die for it. But if a wicked person turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he will live because of it. Yet you say, the Lord's way isn't fair. I will judge each one of you according to his ways, O house of Israel. One thing you should never say to God is, that's not fair. You should never say to God, you should do things the way that I would want to do them. Right? Our whole faith depends actually on God not being fair, doesn't it? Right? Because if God was fair, we would all get wrath and judgment, both the moral, righteous person, the immoral, criminal, whatever, you know, whatever, like the bad guy, which is really all of us, if we're being honest. Um, everybody would deserve wrath and judgment. So the fact that God isn't fair is actually great news. Right? The fact that we don't all get the justice we deserve is great news. Um, I just had a conversation with somebody, and super loose paraphrase, but he said to me, um, I could never follow a religion that had Jeffrey Dahmer ending up in heaven. You know, the guy, he murdered like a ton of people and he ate them and not a great guy. Um, if you're, but here's the thing, this is what I told him. If your understanding of God's grace goes, there are some people who have sinned too much, right? There are people who have racked up too much sin and they'll never be able to be saved. Then you don't have... Uh, an understanding of the magnitude of what Christ did on the cross, right? And actually, I don't know this. Okay, we don't know. I mean, he was clearly mentally ill and all this stuff. But apparently, at the end of his life in prison, Jeffrey Dahmer, they put him on some psych medication, and he turned a little bit normal. Had He started meeting with this priest. Seems like he confessed sin and repented, and then they killed him in prison. And so we don't know. Like, there might be actually a good chance Jeffrey Dahmer ends up, I don't know, I'm not the judge of people's hearts, but a guy like Jeffrey Dahmer ends up in prison. My old pastor used to say this. When you get to heaven, you're going to be surprised by three things. The first is who's there, right? Uh, how did uh, Jeffrey Dahmer end up here, you know? The second thing you're going to be surprised by is who's not there. Uh, where's pastor uh, whatever? <laughs> and the third thing you're going to be surprised by is that you made it, <laughs> right? Because you know your own heart, right? But, I mean, if you understand the grace of God, none of that is actually true, Right? If you really understand the grace of God, none of those th things will be a surprise because um, pastor whoever was a self-righteous, self-justifying guy, sinners are all going to be in heaven. And, you know, yeah, I mean, I can't believe I'm here, but I can believe it because that's the, it's the whole gospel message, right? Um, anyway, so uh, to our minds, though, to our, like, human fallen hearts, God letting Jeffrey Dahmer or somebody like that into eternity just doesn't seem fair, right? It just sort of rubs us the wrong way. Back in Ezekiel, that's what the, they were dealing with. It rubbed them the wrong way. And so Ezekiel, he calls the people to repent. Um, but here's the thing. Like I said, it, he was calling for individual repentance, even though he knew it was already too late for the city to repent. And we see that in this next part. So do you remember a couple chapters ago when God told Ezekiel, write the day down right now, because right now Jerusalem just fell. And what we said was, there's no Twitter, there's no... What's the one you guys use now? Uh, pterodactyls or something? And um, just kidding. <laughs> uh, Macedon. And um, there's no way for news to get back. So Ezekiel, at this point, has known for a bunch of months, five or six months, 
that the city of Jerusalem has fallen, but uh, nobody else knows because the news hasn't had time to travel back. Literally, somebody had to walk thousands of miles and tell everybody. And so this is what we see. This is what happens now. We've been talking about the fall, the coming of the judgment and the fall of Jerusalem for a lot of chapters now. This is where it finally happens. Verse 21, in the 12th year of the exile, in the 10th month, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me, that's Ezekiel, came to me and reported the city has been taken. Now the hand of the Lord had been on me the evening before the fugitive arrived. He opened my mouth before the man came to me in the morning. So my mouth was open and I was no longer mute. Okay, so the date here is January 8th, 585 BC. It's about a little less than six months after the fall of Jerusalem. And like I said, if you remember, it was Ezekiel 24, I wrote it down here. He's known for a while that it fell. Now, um, I want to say a couple things about this. First, God told Ezekiel, do you remember in the very early chapters, hey, you're going to be mute. So unless you're preaching, you don't get to talk anymore in your regular life. You don't get to say to your wife, wow, you look lovely today. Or uh, what'd you put in the stew? You know, like all that kind of stuff, right? You don't get to say anything to anybody. You don't get to tell the doctor, man, it really hurts when I do this, you know, nothing. He's been mute except for when he stands up and he preaches the word of the Lord. Except now, God came to him the night before this fugitive arrived and said, now you can talk. Now you're going to be able to talk because I wanted to limit your voice while you were speaking words of judgment so that all you said was what I told you to say. But now your role with the people is going to change from the the one who calls out judgment to the one who leads and comforts the people. I want you to sit at coffee shops and I want you to talk to people about hope and what's coming next. And I want you to be Israel's pastor in exile. That's what happens. And so what happens the next morning, though, after he gets his voice back here is um, this fugitive comes. Now, when King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, he killed almost everybody. And then he captured the king. Uh, He killed his whole family in front of him. We've talked about this. And then he cut his eyes out. So the last thing he ever saw was his sons, who were supposed to be his heirs, his sons dying in front of him. Most of the rest of the people he took as slaves and marched them back to Babylon. But at least one guy got away. And realizing he had nowhere to go, you can't go back to Jerusalem. They just destroyed the temple. They burned the city. They've destroyed all the cities around Jerusalem. They've destroyed most of the farmland, right? There's nowhere to go. This army has has ravaged the whole nation. He decides, I'm going to run to where I know there's already a lot of exiles, a lot of Israelites, my people. And they have homes and they're settled in Babylon. So the, the people who had already been taken exiles beforehand. So this guy gets away and he travels. He hoofed it across the desert, a couple thousand miles or whatever it was. And um, he probably arrived about a month before the rest of the exiles, it looks like. And with him came the news that the siege of Jerusalem had ended. And it had lasted two years and seven months. And lots of people during the siege died from the disease on the inside. A lot of them died from starvation. The siege got so bad that the people inside turned to cannibalism. The city then was burned to the ground when the army of Babylon finally broke through the walls, and it was utterly destroyed. Solomon's temple, the pride of the nation, was completely burned to the ground. And then all of the like um, national symbols, the, the articles of the temple, the lampstands and all that stuff, was all taken back to Babylon, right? And like the cups, you know, were used for idolatrous stuff, you know, just super insulting. They took all of this stuff away. Now, um, I'm actually going to skip this. Um, In 2 Kings uh, 25, uh, the beginning of 2 Kings 25, I put that in there because I wasn't sure if I was going to read it or not, but I don't have time. Um, Oops, wait, sorry. Hold on, don't click. Uh, In 2 Kings 25, you can read this whole thing here, but we're going to jump. We're going to keep going in Ezekiel. So just think about the the message that all these people came. Like, imagine if you were on vacation in Tahoe, right? Or you got to go further than Tahoe for this to make sense. Um, Okay, you were on vacation in uh, New York or something. Okay, you're on the other side of the country. And you turn on CNN. And it's one of those days where every channel has the news on. You're in your hotel. You click on the news. And... Uh, you look at the news and it says uh, a nuke went off at the port of Oakland and the Bay Area has been destroyed. And you're like, "Uh uh-oh, that's where I live. That's where everybody I know lives. 
right? I happen to be in New York right now. This is what the exiles were going through. But my homeland is gone, right? And you're watching the helicopters circling what's left of the Bay Area, and you look at the big hole in the ground that used to be Knob Hill or, you know, right? Imagine the feeling that you would have something like that. That's what these people are struggling with. Um, so what we're going to read, today we're going to read the rest of kind of what's going on. I just want you to have that feeling in your gut because next week we're going to start talking about God's comfort and that sort of stuff. All right, but here's the thing. The nuclear thing doesn't make a lot of sense with this next part of the passage. The illustration completely breaks down because um, there were actually people left in the land, and that's who God's going to address real quick here. Look at what these people in the land, uh, what they say. Verse 23, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, those who live among the ruins in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one person, yet he received possession of the land, but we're many. Surely the land has been given to us as a possession. Therefore say to them, this is what the Lord God says. You eat meat with blood in it. You look to your idols and you shed blood. Should you then receive the possession of the land? You have relied on your words. You have committed detestable acts and each of you has defiled his neighbor's wife. Should you then receive possession of the land? Tell them this. This is what the Lord God says. As surely as I live, those who are in the ruins will fall by the sword. Those in the open field will be given to wild animals to be devoured. That's my worst nightmare. And those in the strongholds and the caves will die by plague. I will make the land a desolate waste, and its proud strength will come to an end. The mountains of Israel will, be, will become desolate with no one passing through. Then they will know, they will know that I am the Lord uh, when I make the land desolate a desolate waste because of the detestable acts they've committed. All right, so here's where, like, the illustration with the nuclear bomb breaks down, because there were actually a handful of people that got left behind. The king of Babylon said, okay, we're going to take almost everybody. Nebuchadnezzar, he said, we're going to take almost everybody into captivity, but we're going to find the poorest people around, and we're going to make them farm the land and give us all the stuff that they grow, right? So basically slave labor on these farms. And their thought was this. Okay, everybody's been taken into exile now, right? We've had three waves of exile. We've had the whole nation of Israel destroyed. But God left us because we're the good guys. We're, you know, we're the remnant. We're the ones that have the blessing of God. And then somebody said, yeah, but there's so few of us. There's only a handful of us here. And their answer was, well, Abraham, he was just one guy. He had the whole land. There's a couple of us, right? Maybe God is blessing us. And God's response is, what are you smoking, right? That's, that's the, in the Hebrew. Um, and he goes, you guys are the worst lawbreakers, you know, and he lists all the different rules from the law of Moses that they were breaking, right? You're no better than anybody else. You just happen to get left behind. And then the, the, like the camera shifts now, you know, like in the movie, it shifts, okay, so we've had a word to those guys left behind, and now a word to the exiles with Ezekiel who are about to receive in a whole group of, more exiles, right? So all the survivors are going to make it to them. So he has this word for them. As for you, son of man, your people are talking about you near the city walls and in the doorways of their houses. You hear that? Everybody's talking about Ezekiel. One person speaks to another, each saying to his brother, come, let us hear the message that comes from the Lord. So my people come to you in crowds. They sit in front of you and hear your words, but they don't obey them. Their mouths go on passionately, but their hearts pursue dishonest profit. Yes, to them you're like a singer of passionate songs who has a beautiful voice, like me and Josue, and plays skillfully on an instrument, like Josue. And they hear your words, and they don't obey them. Yet when all this comes true, and it definitely will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. So here's the message to Ezekiel about these exiles, the message to the exiles, right? For years, the people listened to Ezekiel, and nobody took him seriously. And every week, he did something crazy. He built a little Lego model of the city of Jerusalem. Here's the temple, and here's my old house. And then he laid siege to it, and he kicked it and kicked rocks. And he goes, you know, just like that, a Lego model was destroyed, so God is going to destroy Jerusalem. And they went, yeah, right. And then... Uh, he digs a hole in the side of his house and he crawls out of it. And they're like, what are you doing? He's all dirty. And he looks up and he goes, just like I crawled out of this hole, people are going to be trying to escape from Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar destroys it. And they went, yeah, okay. Then he eats this diet of hardly any food. And the, some of the food is cooked 
uh, over cow dung. And he goes, people are going to really struggle during the siege of Jerusalem to eat, and everybody's going to starve to death because Nebuchadnezzar is going to destroy the city because God is sending him. And the people go, yeah, right. And Ezekiel gets up and he goes, you're like two sisters. You're like a cheating wife. He has all these different things. He goes, because of all this iniquity and all this sin, God is going to destroy Jerusalem. And they went, yeah, right. And then one day they were all sitting around having s'mores over the fire. And this guy comes running in and he's all disheveled. Because today's the marathon. What's a marathon? 20-something miles? This guy runs 2,000-something miles. Um, I forget how long. I should have looked it up before the sermon. But it's like 1,500 miles maybe as the crow flies. But you kind of have to go up and around. I mean, so this guy took a journey. He comes in. He's all tired. Like whenever I just walk up the stairs to my house. <gasps> you know, <sighs> he's making that noise. And they're like, what's going on? And he goes, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. And all these people that thought God would never let the temple be destroyed, the first thing they said was, what about the temple? And then the fugitive goes, gone. I watched it burn. I watched the walls of the temple collapse. And everybody's heart sank. And then all of a sudden, they all remembered, and they looked at Ezekiel. Because for years, he's been telling them this. And now, they all wake up the next morning, and the whole camp of exiles is buzzing because the news has come that the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed. And then everybody who hears the news goes, he was right? I mean, imagine if the crazy guy screaming at you about the aliens are coming, you know? They're going to probe you. He says that when you're at Pier 39 or whatever. And you're like, yeah, okay, dude. And then, you know, the aliens come and then they probe you and you're like, the crazy guy was right. You'd probably go back to Pier 39 tomorrow and be like, what else? Right? That's kind of what they're doing. But at the same time, then he goes, okay, now there's giant spiders. And you're like, okay, giant spiders, I don't think so. Right? The next thing that he says, they don't believe him. <laughs> right? They're not going to obey what he does. They don't really take him seriously. God says that they are only listening to you as like a sideshow. You're a freak. Right? You're, you're an entertainer. You're a really good musician or a really good singer. And so this word to the exiles this is, uh, by the way, some of the last things that Ezekiel hears from the Lord, chronologically, right? Um, uh, one of the last things he hears from the Lord is, look, dude, I know, I get it. They don't believe you. They're not going to believe you. I want you to keep going. But one day, they're not going to see you as a freak. They're not gonna, one day, your name will be vindicated, and they're going to know that they had a real prophet among them. The people of God will know. And of course, that prophecy came true. How do we know that prophecy came true? Because we're reading this book on Union Street, you know, 2,500 plus years later, right? Eventually, his name was vindicated. Um, all right, that's the passage. That's Ezekiel 23. Now, I'm going to give you a few quick points about this, and then we're done. First thing is this. God calls Ezekiel to be a watchman. God calls us to be watchmen. And let's be honest, being a watchman sucks right? Being the guy who has to give people bad news. I don't understand how somebody goes through med school and then goes, you know what? I want to be a kid's cancer doctor. I mean, I get it because those guys are amazing, right? You know, uh, dedicating your whole life to saving children, doing all this stuff. But a lot of times you have to sit down with the family and go, these scans are not good. That's like the hardest job in the whole world, maybe. Um, that's tough. That's because we want everybody to like us, right? We, we have that built into us. We don't like it when somebody says, I don't like you. There's a whole Everybody Loves Raymond episode about this where he gets obsessive because he finds out some guy he doesn't even know says he doesn't like Ray. <laughs> and he breaks into the guy's party, crashes his party, goes up and he asks him, why don't you like me, right? This is, and the, the episode is so relatable because Ray does what we would all want to do if we found out somebody saying, I don't like John. I'd be like, why don't you know what's going on here? We have that built in us. Um, but God calls us to be watchmen. This is the Great Commission, right? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Part of that is going out there and telling the whole gospel, not just part of the gospel, the whole gospel. Right? It's easy to say Jesus loves you. It's the hard part is to say, and if you reject him, this is what the Bible says is happening next. But what we learn here in Ezekiel is that that responsibility is given to God's people. And we're called to be watchmen. And God says, 
I don't want to press it too far, right? The analogy, we don't want to press it too far. But the analogy, like the picture he uses is he goes, and then when that person doesn't know that the bad, you know, the judgment is coming, it's your fault, right? This is on your head. Their blood will be on your head. All right, so that's the first thing. Being a watchman stinks. <laughs> so we can just admit that, right? It's not great. Uh, the second idea here is um, as your pastor, it's not my job to be an entertainer. It's my job to be a watchman. Now, this is important, too, because sometimes Ezekiel has some long passages, and they're, <laughs> you know, we're working our way through some tough stuff. There's tough stuff all over the Bible, and part of the reason that we read through books the way that we do is so that I don't get to skip anything. You know, um, I remember the week when, okay, who was here? We had, like, some guests and stuff. And I was like, had to like 15 times in the passage, <laughs> you know, like, um, like you're, what is it? Caressing your virgin nipples or whatever. Like, remember I had to say that like a hundred times. And then there was the whole one about the donkey and I'm not going to get into it again, but all right. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in here that I would rather just not do in church, you know, but reading through the way we do, we do it so that I, I don't get to pick and choose, right? I pick and choose the book, but then once it's in the book, we're going to read it. Um, Listen, guys, I know I'm hilarious, and I know you think that my jokes is the highlight of your week when I do my puns in church, right? And you just, you leave thinking, boy, I wish I was as funny as John, right? But that's not my job. My job's not to stand up here and to tell jokes. That's just the perk. My job is to stand up here and preach what the Bible says. I want you guys to leave not going, whoa, John said, yada, yada. I want you leaving going, this is what the Bible says. This is what the Lord says to his people, right? And sometimes, if we're being honest, that's not as exciting as watching TV. But that's okay, because it's not my job uh, to crack you up and be hilarious and to entertain you. And I could juggle. I'm very good at juggling. I learned how to juggle when I was like three. I, I'm pretty good at juggling, but that's not what I'm doing, right? And so what I want you to do is get in the habit of showing up ready to be challenged and to actually learn something in church, right? So take a Sunday nap, do whatever you got to do, eat a sandwich, come with some energy, show up. And uh, um, when we go through, I mean, I guess we're kind of done with the biggest long sections of Ezekiel. I should have said this in chapter three, but, <laughs> you know, we, when we had these three chapters behind us, but uh, come ready to be challenged, not to be entertained, and when I'm not very entertaining, don't get that mad, right? Um, get mad when I'm not challenging and when I'm not really teaching you what's in the Bible. When you leave from a Sunday and you have no idea what the text was about, that's when you should be mad at me, okay? And you should come to me and be like, I have no idea what you said today. Okay, that, that's cool. That's what we're doing. The third thing, so it's my job to be a watchman, but it's also your job to be a watchman, not to just be popular. The temptation is to always back off when we have to talk about something serious. Because, like I said, I want everybody to like me, except Dodger fans, I don't care if they like me. But almost everybody in the world, I want them to like me. And on some level, we're all people pleasers. Some people more than others, right? But we have that built into us. When we talk about our Pabst Blue Ribbon thing, the idea of being a watchman feeds into everyone <coughs> every one of these letters. And this is a good plug, by the way, for our meeting next week. We have these new Pabst booklet things that um, uh, we're printing up this week that we wrote up uh, that'll teach you all about Pabst Blue Ribbon. So, but think about our thing. Pray for people, right? We pray not just that some sort of a generic, Lord, save this person, but we ask that God would save them so that they could escape judgment. We ask them about their lives. Sometimes it's a good conversation starter to just ask people, what do you, you know, look, this is what I believe the Bible says about heaven and hell. What do you think of that? Ask them a question. Start those conversations. Um, the S, P, or sorry, the B, not really applicable. The S, share how you found faith in Jesus and you've escaped eternal judgment and the hope that you have because you know you're not headed to eternal death. And then the T is talk about the gospel or teach the gospel. Have we decided? I think talk about is what we're going to do. And we have to make new stickers. Um, talk about the gospel. Tell the whole story, though. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. But, like, the part of there is, like, um, what's that famous quote about people who take the judgment out of the Bible? It's God saves you from nothing. <laughs> you know? Just like, you know, anyway. So here's the thing. 
I want you to be bold in the way that you share your faith. And when I say bold, I don't mean be um, obnoxious. Bold and obnoxious are two different things. Okay, but I want you to be bold in the way you share your faith. And so the big question, how we're going to end then, is this. Where does gospel boldness come from? Because look, here, I'm sitting in a conversation with somebody. Uh, your friends, the ones that turned into Barbara Walters when I told them I was a pastor, they didn't ask me, what do you believe about hell? Right? But, or what do you believe about the afterlife? Or, you know, there's a lot of ways. But I have heard that question before. So imagine you're at John's party and whatever, and, or, you know, you're having dinner at my house or something. I don't know. You're out with your friends or a coworker, and they find out you go to church, and they go, you're not one of those churches that believes in hell, are you? Right? Or something like that. Or I've had people ask me, so you think I'm going to hell? I've literally had this question. Okay, here's the thing. What do you do? How do you not, okay, how do you have the, not what do you do, we all know what we should do, is gently give an actual answer to that question. You know what, I do believe that our actions matter and that God is a God of justice and what that means is this, right? We kind of go through what we believe, but how do you have the boldness to do it? Where does that boldness come from? First, I want to tell you where it doesn't come from. Boldness, gospel boldness does not come from guilt. Like I always say, guilt is a terrible motivator because it's not as powerful as the need to be liked. You know, guilt will get you to be bold with somebody you don't care if they like you, right? So yeah, it'll, it'll give you boldness to be mean to people, but it won't give you boldness to be kind and loving in the way that you're sharing the gospel, right? Um, it's not as powerful as our impulse to always just take the easiest road. So where does gospel boldness come from? Three places. First, gospel boldness comes from joy. You have experienced Jesus if you are saved, if you're one of his people. Don't you want others to experience that same thing that you know, that same joy and hope and sense of peace and contentment? Have you ever seen a great movie and then you can't stop talking about it? Everybody you meet, you go, did you see Barbie? I don't know if Barbie's great. We haven't seen it. But I mean, that's what everybody around here is doing right now. Have you seen Barbie yet? And I was like, no, I haven't seen Barbie yet. Oppenheimer, that's the one to go see. Anyway, uh, but I'm sure I'm going to go see Oppenheimer tomorrow. That's the plan. And then next week, the whole sermon's going to be about this. No, but you know that feeling? Have you ever had a really good restaurant nobody's heard of? And you're like, I cannot wait to tell people about this um, or whatever it is. Like you found a new dish soap that actually gets out the spots or you, you know, something. Part, here's the thing. Part of enjoying something is not just enjoying it. It's bringing other people into the enjoyment. And it's the same with worship. You worshiping God by yourself is incomplete. Your worship and love for the Lord is not really complete until you bring other people into it as well. Um, there's a guy, his name was Clive Staples Lewis. Have you heard of him? I put that on the thing. Nobody knows his real name because it's so ridiculous. C.S. Lewis. He said this. Um, okay, here's a very long quote. Uh, can you keep up with this, whoever has the clicker? I think... We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is an, uh, its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and to not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly to the turn of a road upon some mountain valley, uh, mountain valley, isn't that a contra, anyway, of unexpected grandeur, and then ha to have to keep silent because the people with whom you care for it no more than, uh, sorry, for the people with you care for it no more than a t uh, for a tin can in a ditch. To hear a good joke and find out nobody to share, find nobody to share with. Uh, the Scotch Catechism says, that's the, the Presbyterian thing, says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these things, sorry, these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify, God is inviting us to enjoy him. That's such a good quote, even though it was very long. Basically, your enjoyment of something is not complete until you share it with other people. And when you do, it takes you into a whole new level. Now, what that means is when you share the whole gospel with people around you, your understanding of the gospel and your love for the Lord deepens, even when it's hard. And when you know that, that's the first place boldness comes from. The second place is boldness comes from uh, love, 
right? You have escaped wrath, the wrath of God. Don't you want others to escape it as well? Imagine that you had a friend, or so let's say um, every day your mom or somebody you love, somebody very close to you, drank the same brand of coffee every single day. You knew, like, this is my mom's brand of coffee. Folgers Instant Crystals. That's the good stuff. And uh, then you saw online at the Folgers Instant Crystals slash dog food factory, probably, um, <laughs> uh, some disgruntled employee laced a bunch of it with strychnine and then quit. <laughs> and there's people dying all over the world because they're eating, they're drinking Folgers Instant Crystals. Wouldn't you call your mom right away, you know, and say, hey, maybe get some real coffee today. Don't eat the Folgers Instant Crystals. That's the same idea, right? You get it. If you love somebody and you know that they're headed for wrath and you don't say anything, what it really says is you care more about yourself than you do about them. You care more about, this is the same thing with why we don't tell people that they have something in their teeth. We care more about ourselves than we do about them because nobody wants to have something in their teeth and walk into a job interview or whatever. Okay, here's the third thing. Uh, I said three, but there's actually four because I don't know how to count. Gospel boldness comes from a love for truth. So uh, we are, as God's people, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one, but we are people of truth. We want to find the truth. We want to ask questions. We search the scriptures. We study them together because we believe that there really is a way out there that the world works, and we want to be connected to the God who's in, that, in control of that. And so if we love truth and somebody out there has their whole life based on something that we don't believe to be true, that's a conversation we want to have. But so letting people live in falsehood is wicked, right? If there was, have you ever had, okay, uh, Melissa's going to, okay, don't look at me. Um, but have you ever had a loved one who refuses to admit that they're sick? or like that their body doesn't work or whatever. Yeah, yeah, okay, right? Right, and isn't it the loving thing to do to be like, hey man, stop picking things up? That's what Melissa always says to me, right? Or whatever, because I refuse to admit that I'm an old man now. What's that? Yeah, go to the, yeah, okay, stop talking to me. Um, but that's the loving thing to do, right? If you had a, somebody who just refused to admit that they were as sick as they were, they're living in a falsehood and it's not a loving thing to just go along and play along with that. But at the same time, correcting people without gentleness is wicked, right? Just yelling at people and being harsh, right? I don't know, maybe calling them out in front of the whole church, Melissa, yelling at me about my, anyway, um, right? But so pulling people aside and having real conversations with them about what, what's going on, that's the way to do it. All right, next, gospel boldness, the last one, comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the thing, you're an idiot, so am I, we're all idiots. And we're all selfish, and we all have sin within us. And we're not going to be able to just muster up the boldness to share the truth of the gospel, especially in a culture we live in where two things are true. When you talk about judgment, you're the worst person in the world. And when you say to somebody that there's only one way that's true, that's the other worst thing you can say to somebody. So basically, we're piling on in our culture two things that everybody hates. And our hearts are not wired to go... Uh, to share that message in a loving way. So what we need is the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to build us into the kind of people who are so loving and who are so gentle and who are so um, respected, right, that we have the opportunity to share these truths with people. I want to show you this story. This is one of, We're going to read Acts together, so I'm not going to super get into this, but this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. After, uh, let's see, where am I? Verse 23. Let's see. After they were released... They went to their own people. So the apostles had just been arrested by the uh, Sanhedrin guys, and they beat them up pretty good. After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together with God and said, here's one of my favorite prayers in the whole Bible. Watch this. So imagine for a second if you got arrested by the police, and then they took you into the station, and they because... You were a believer and they didn't like that. That's the reason, not because you're an idiot and you did something wrong. Just some cops don't, you know, whatever it is. And they rough you up. You're completely beaten to a pulp. You show up to church because we're right next to the police station. So you walk into church and you get up and you pray. Is this what you would pray? Because it's not what I would pray. This is what they pray. Master, you are the one who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of your father, David, your servant, 
Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot with feudal things? This is so weird in a different translation. Uh, people plot feudal things. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble uh, together against the Lord and his Messiah and his anointed. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed in the name, uh, through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So this is what they prayed. They went through the story of the Bible and they went, you made everything. And you spoke through David and promised that the Messiah would come. And then he came and the people killed him because your plan had predestined that to take place. And now, Lord, they just beat me up and I'm covered, you know, in blood. So give me more boldness. That's what they prayed. They didn't pray, Lord, I don't want to get beat up again. Save me from this tribulation. They said, give me more boldness to share the faith. And you only pray for boldness when your boldness is wavering, by the way. They were, they were stunned. Right? It was tough, but this is what they prayed. And then verse 31. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. How cool would it have been if there was an earthquake right there when I said, no, just kidding. <laughs> a little one, not a bad one. So the last one is this, boldness comes, gospel boldness comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. When he works in our lives, when the Spirit moves in, what he does is he rewires our hearts. We're going to get to that in chapter 36, about the new heart and the new covenant and all that. The more work he does in there, the more clearly we will see reality. And the reality is this, that the people around us, we live in a city, in a nation, right? We live around a lot of people who are actually on the highway to hell, like the ACDC song, but not in a fun, we're all going to get there in party way. But the highway to hell in that, like, they're all speeding towards judgment. Sin, they will get there. Sin will ruin them. Wrath will be poured out. And for all of eternity, they will be miserable. And that's the reality. But at the same time, eternal life is offered to all of these people for nothing. Grace is offered for free. And our sin fogs up our spiritual vision. And all of a sudden, having friends and being kind of liked a little bit more is more important and so we back off of the truth because our hearts aren't wired for boldness. Our hearts aren't wired to love people. And so what we need is the spirit to move in. And the spirit can move in because Christ has died and rose again. Because he has paid the price to bring us back to the Father. And he sends his spirit upon us. And when he does that, he brings a whole new outlook, a new boldness, and a new heart to love the people around us even when it's really hard. All right, let's pray.